Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to the Linux and Open Source News Podcast. And this week we have a lot of exciting stuff happening, with AMD moving their firmware to a fully open source Core Boot compatible alternative. We have System76 announcing that their future Cosmic Desktop will be heavily customizable. We have very interesting changes to the defaults in Plasma 6, good stuff on the Firefox side, and some not-so-great gaming-related news. So, as always, all the links I use to write this podcast are in the show notes, and as always, this show is user-funded, so if you appreciate it this way without ads and sponsors, please consider looking at the show notes as well to find ways to support the show. So, let's get started. So, first, let's talk about AMD. And it looks like they're going to be the ultimate free and open source champion in terms of hardware. Because they now have announced, officially, that they're going to shift their firmware from the old AGESA or AGESA, I'm not sure how you're supposed to say it, to OpenSIL. So, AGESA is their current library to initialize their AMD CPUs on the motherboard. It's a part of the motherboard's BIOS, and it basically controls the CPU, the RAM, everything that your computer needs to actually post and boot. And OpenSIL does the exact same thing, but is a completely open source library that already has support for 4th gen Epic CPUs, but just as a proof of concept. Like, yeah, they have code available, but it's not production ready, and it doesn't support anything else right now but they won't limit it to server hardware. They announced that it will fully replace their previous firmware and that all of their product line will be covered by 2026. So in two and a half years or three years maximum, basically every single AMD CPU will be covered by OpenSIL. Now, what we don't really know is that is if that support will be backported to existing CPUs that are already on the market, or if only the new ones they will release uh, since, well, until 2026, will be supported by this. Now, they said they're committed to open source software, and also that the new open architecture will allow them to be more scalable, so it's probably easier with this new library to implement initialization features and integrating with BIOSes for all their lineup instead of trying to patch the older AGESA, AGESA. And they also say that it will reduce the attack surface, probably because they developed this library in a more modular fashion. And with open source code, well, it's open, people can look at it and help if they want and contribute fixes. So this new library can interface with Coreboot, which, if you don't know, is an open source bootloader. Well, yes, bootloader. Not sure if it's called a bootloader. It's a BIOS. It's an open source BIOS. And it also integrates with other other open firmware solutions, which is really cool. And they're also collaborating with other organizations like American Megatrends, which you might know as AMI, or you might know as the horrendously flashy blue BIOS that you get on a lot of motherboards, laptops, desktops. You've probably seen it already, that this giant blue thing with old terminal fonts that you can only navigate with the keyboard. So it's obviously just a first step, and as I said, the code is not production ready. And for now, the integration with Coreboot and support for regular Ryzen CPUs is not there, but it's super encouraging. 
and I personally cannot wait to see more Linux devices using this open firmware. That's one less part of the system that will be locked down and that's always good for compatibility reasons, for just having a, an as open as possible system because if you're going to run Linux and open source software, you might as well also want an open source firmware and open source BIOS. So it's all good and congrats AMD on really supporting the open source community. Their support hasn't always been perfect, especially for their newer GPUs where sure the drivers might be there in Mesa by the time a new card launches, but it's generally not up to snuff and these versions of the drivers generally don't make their way into a distro until three or four months afterwards unless you're running something super bleeding edge. But still, they're making all efforts to have open source everything basically and it's really cool. Now our second headline is the cosmic desktop environment which you might already know in its current implementation in pop os. For now it's just a heavily modified gnome with uh, system 76's developed extensions and they call that cosmic. But they're working as you probably know on a new implementation completely redeveloped from scratch using Rust. They built their own widget toolkit to build their apps. Uh, they implemented accessibility features and they've been unveiling bit by bit what they're working on and what that new cosmic desktop will look like and will feel like. And so this month is no exception. They also talked about what they were working on. And this time specifically it's the panels because Cosmic will use a panel based layout much like every other desktop. So by default you'll get the top panel much like in GNOME and the dock which is also a panel. But these panels will be heavily customizable. Uh, first you can change the various applets that are in them much like what you can do in uh, Mate, in Cinnamon, in XFCE or with GNOME extensions. They, they actually compare these applets to GNOME extensions. So I think we can probably expect the same amount of features that you would get from GNOME extensions, which is really cool. And so these panels are customizable with the on-screen position, the screen edge where you want to place them. If you want to add a margin to make them float from the screen edge, you can also decide to not have them extend to the entirety of the display. You can stack them on top of one another. So you can have two panels on the same edge of the screen. And each panel also has the option to be set to light or dark mode or use your system theme. You can auto hide them, you can show them on every display or on specific displays. So it sort of looks like KDE levels of customization or at least cinnamon levels of customization, which is really, really cool. It's nothing we haven't seen in other desktop environments, but it's still really cool to see that while they are building this new experience, they are not locking the users into their own specific vision. They're allowing users to pick and choose how they want to work, which is cool because we already have one very opinionated desktop, which is GNOME. I really like it, but a lot of people don't. And so having a modular one basically allows people to have as simple or as complex an experience. And since they're rebuilding this from scratch, I guess they can implement this modularity at the very core of the desktop, which means it should be relatively stable. Now they also talked a bit about the settings and they're working on the wallpaper and keyboard input pages, which are, well, settings pages that you will be able to access. But what's more interesting is that the settings app will have an API to add or remove pages onto the settings application. 
So if you have a project and you want your settings to be integrated in the main Cosmic System settings, you will be able to. You don't have to have your own individual settings app. So let's imagine, for example, you develop a super powerful applet for the Cosmic Desktop, but you don't want to have its own settings window floating around that users don't really know where to find. Well, you could develop a settings page that slots into the settings app of the system, which means the user can have access to all their settings in one single place. And that's really cool. They also say they're working on HDR, and I talked about it last week. There was a hack fest uh, about HDR and, uh, and um, various color-related uh, things on Linux and also variable refresh rate. And apparently one of System76's developers joined that hack fest. And so they plan to support HDR fully when general support is available. And they estimate that to be in a couple of years. In the meantime, they have basic, very generic HDR support, like what you could try and get on any Linux distro, but it's not going to be great until the actual backend work has been done. They also added 10-bit color support to Cosmic, and they worked on adding an accessibility framework on their Iced library, which is the Rust-based graphical toolkit library that they use to build their desktop. Well, they slot another own library on top of that, which is basically their Cosmic library, which adds the Cosmic widgets for their look and feel. But yeah, they, they, they're implementing accessibility features, which is also nice. They're thinking about every category of users, and I think it's cool. So this project is shaping up really nicely, and it's truly awesome to see that they want their whole desktop to be customizable to fit the user's needs. And I'm really liking what I'm seeing from Cosmic. Right now, I would not go back to Pop! OS. I like the desktop they built, but it's lacking uh, compared to if you used, I don't know, just GNOME with a Dash 2 panel and another launcher and a few extensions, because, well, it's way behind in terms of GNOME support, uh, in terms of Wayland support, in terms of gesture support. Uh, they have gestures, but they are not one-to-one -one everywhere. It's just not as good. And the base of Pop! OS is starting to be pretty old, and they apparently don't plan to update it to match the Ubuntu 23.04 release, which means we have to wait for at least six more months until we get a, a Pop! OS release, which is a very long time, because uh, that will be a full year and a half, I think, uh, since the latest one. So yeah, Right now, I would not use PopOS, but the Cosmic Desktop that they're working on seems really nice. And I can't wait for them to release a beta so I can sink my teeth in it, see how it looks, how other applications integrate with it or not. I think it's going to be a fun experience. And while we are still on the desktop environment th side of things, uh, there are some interesting changes that will come to KDE Plasma's defaults in Plasma 6. So they had a Plasma 6 Sprint this week, which was actually hosted in the offices of Tuxedo Computers in Germany, which you probably know if you follow the channel, it's one of the main channel sponsors. It's been for a year. Uh, our contract is up for renewal, by the way. So I have to see if we're still working together soon. Uh, but yeah, so they had this little Sprint to code on Plasma 6 or to at least make some decisions related to Plasma 6. And so they decided to change a few things. So first, double-click will be the default in the file manager. Up until now and for a quite a long time, I, I, I think since KDE 4, uh, single-click has been the default to open folders or files. Of course, you could change it back to double-click, but even though most of the developers apparently prefer 
uh, single click, uh, the developers for KDE at least, they admit that most users are used to double clicking by default and so that will be the new default and of course you'll still be able to change it to single click if you prefer that. They also said that the default experience they want uh, should be based on Wayland, but as we all know, it's the distro that decides which display server slash compositor slash ensemble of things is shipped. So distributions will have to pick between X11 or Wayland if they prefer. But honestly, if Wayland support is good enough, they should probably ship Wayland because the KDE team is not going to keep working on supporting X11 or adding other features. Maybe they'll fix bugs, but that's about it. So it's more of a recommendation from the Plasma developers than something they can actually enforce, but they'll put heavy emphasis on our desktop works best and is more supported with Wayland. Uh, this means that they also went over the list of the remaining Wayland issues that they have to focus on and they will just start working on the ones that are the most problematic like some NVIDIA related issues because that's where most of Wayland issues still reside. They also said that they want to make Earth panels floating by default. So you'll still get the regular layout with the bottom taskbar, the menu, the window style layout that they use. But they want the panel to be floating by default and the reason is actually pretty funny. They say that because Windows 11 blatantly copied Plasma in terms of look, which I don't think most people can deny or they just converged on the exact same look and feel and style, well, people are starting to think that it went the other way around, that Plasma copied Windows 11, and so a lot of people are thinking Plasma is a cheap clone of Windows 11. So they want to move away from that misconception, and they want to have a floating panel to show what can be done on KDE, and so people can think, hey, look, that's actually pretty cool, that's actually different, and stop thinking that, hey, look, they copied Windows 11, even though Plasma looked like that way before Windows 11 came out. Now, until Microsoft copies that design as well for Windows 12, of course, because I would not be surprised if on Windows 12 the taskbar was floating as well and didn't touch the edges of the screen. Because their designers not only ignore half of the core Windows applications and subsystems when they implement a new theme and a new look, they generally don't go over older versions of their applications like the peripheral manager or stuff like that. It's just never redesigned. It looks awful in Windows 11. Uh, but not only do they not do that, but they also don't really seem to have ideas of their own. So yeah, they probably will copy this in Windows 12 as well, thinking they came up with something super original. Now, let's go back to Plasma 6. Uh, I'm done crapping on Microsoft. So all the window headers in Plasma 6, so you know this title bar plus toolbar combo. They are not header bars in Plasma. They, they just look like they might be because they unified the look. There's no line differentiating them into the default breeze theme. Well, now these headers will also use the accent color by default to tint the window colors. You could already do that in Plasma 5, but it was an optional thing. You had to enable it yourself in the color settings. Now it will be the default, which I think looks good depending on the accent color you picked, but it also has the added benefits of making it easier to notice which window is currently active and which are not. So it's also a usability feature, which I think is good. They will move the task switcher, the, the alt tab thing, uh, to the thumbnail grid style. You can already use that one in Plasma 5. 
And honestly, it's better than the vertical panel that they use by default right now. Right now in KDE, on the default implementation, if you press Alt plus Tab, you have this small black column that appears on the left edge of your screen and all the windows are plopped one on top of another and you, you switch this way. But it's not intuitive, it's not in the middle of the screen, so it's not where your, your eyes will naturally rest. And it's just not what people are used to. So the thumbnails grid is basically just a grid of small window thumbnails with an app icon and a name that appears in the middle of your screen. I think it will be better for navigation. Now there's also some smaller changes like disabling scrolling on the desktop to change virtual desktops by default. Most distros probably already disable that, but on the default implementation of KDE, if you use the mouse wheel on the desktop, you automatically switch to the next or the previous virtual desktop. This will still be possible, but they will disable it by default. And you will also be able to click on the scroll bar area to jump the scroll bar to where you clicked. Uh, something I'm not sure can be done right now in Plasma 5, I can't remember, maybe it is, uh, but this will be the default, which is a bit of added functionality. Now they also announced that they will slow down the release cycle. Up until now, Plasma had three releases per year, uh, every four months. And now they'll make one or two releases per year max instead. So. They said this will allow uh, fixed release distros like the big ones, like the Ubuntu, well, or Kubuntu in this case, uh, Fedora or the KD Fedora Spin, and a lot of others that release every six months uh, to ship the latest version of KD instead of having to skip one in the middle of the year because it comes way too close to their release window and it's not polished enough. And this will also let the Plasma developers take more time to make sure everything is polished and as good as can be that is, if they can manage this new cycle properly, because when you have more time, you also tend to want to cram more features in it, and so you end up not testing as much as you wanted to. So we'll have to see how it goes. I think it's good enough. Honestly, two releases per year is already pretty solid. It's what GNOME does, and, and I think most other desktop environments don't have two releases uh, per year. So I think it's good. I think it's a good move, especially since Plasma is now pretty stable and polished. They really ironed out the bugs and we were kind of on a tick and then talk release cycle where one would add a lot of features but was pretty buggy and the second one would fix all those bugs but did not add much. If they can have only two releases that are all stable and with new features, I think it's going to be better for everyone. Okay, now we're going to talk about Firefox and we have a few interesting things. Uh, first, there's a rumor that seems to point that Microsoft wants to strike a deal with Mozilla to make Bing the default search engine instead of Google. Currently, Firefox is mainly funded by Google with a giant search deal, which represents, I think, about 90% or 85% of Mozilla's revenue. So if Google decides to dump them, they basically die. And it looks like Microsoft, uh, uh, oh yeah, this contract is up for renewal this year, which is probably why this rumor is born. Apparently it comes from Microsoft executives, but I couldn't find a super trustworthy source. So take that with a pinch of salt. And so Microsoft would be interested in replacing Google as the default search engine in Firefox. It's probably an effort to push Bing outside of Windows and Microsoft Edge. Uh, they already do pretty much everything they can to make sure that Windows users use Bing and Edge instead of Google or anything else, because they 
basically push edge down the throat of users. The default search tool already accesses Bing and you can't change that. So yeah, they, they probably want to push Bing further. Firefox might not be like the best way to do it because its market share is pretty small these days, but they probably know they have no chance of doing such a deal with other browsers that are focused on privacy. So I don't know. I'm not sure Firefox would agree to this, to this kind of deal, and I'm not sure Microsoft actually proposed it. In any case, if it happened, I'm pretty sure it would not go very well for Microsoft, because Firefox is probably just used by a lot of, of Linux users. And honestly, I don't see many Linux users keeping Bing as the default search engine on their Firefox. People would switch back to Google or to a privacy-respecting search engine like DuckDuckGo, like Ecosia, which, by the way, uses Bing but anonymizes things, like StartPage and the like. I mean, how many of you that use Firefox would actually keep Bing as the default search engine? And that's assuming that Linux distributions would keep Bing in their default Firefox install and packages, which is not a given either. So yeah, it's just a rumor for now, but apparently it's pretty likely that it's in talks. And so we'll have to see. Personally, uh, if my Firefox ships with Bing, I don't care. I already changed the default Google for Ecosia. So if it comes with Bing, I will still change things for Ecosia. But yeah, not sure that this deal will be super profitable for Microsoft. And now still on Firefox, we have a few updates. Uh, they released version 113 this week which makes the integrated picture-in-picture -picture mode actually useful. Uh, it will finally now show a progress bar that you can scrub through. It will show the video length, the elapsed time, and you can use the rewind or fast-forward buttons. And you'll also get a toggle to make that little pop-up window, this little picture-in-picture -picture window, completely full screen if you want. Uh, they also added support for AV1 image files, and they improved the support for screen readers and the password generator that is included in Firefox, if you use a Firefox account, will now include special characters uh, to create stronger passwords, which I had never realized they didn't do, but is a big oversight, so it's good that they did it. That's all good stuff, but what's really interesting is what's coming in Firefox 114, the next version, because they will add a feature called Cookie Banner Reduction, which is basically something that will try to automatically reject cookie requests so you don't see these annoying little pop-ups that block your navigation all the time. It will be disabled by default because apparently it could break some websites, but it's something I will definitely turn on because I am sick and tired of clicking on refuse all or clicking manage settings and disable all the toggles or whatever. It's a pain and you're generally just better off clicking accept all and just do it. That That's the dark pattern most websites implement. So. I'm glad this is a new feature and I think it's going to be great. They will also add quick actions in the URL bar, which will let you clear cookies or history, let you open the settings, view the source of the page. Basically, you just type what you want and it will offer a suggestion to do it. And they will also turn DNS over HTTPS on, which means that your connections to your DNS server will be encrypted using HTTPS which also means that your internet service provider or your DNS provider that you use will not be able to see which domain you visit, which is really nice. So I'm looking forward to 114 and I will definitely enable that cookie thing as soon as I get the update because I am tired of them.
And we also have some news about Thunderbird. Uh, they published their annual financial report and it might sound drab and boring, but it actually has a few interesting things in it. So first, it looks like Thunderbird is extremely well funded. Uh, donations have skyrocketed in 2022, reaching almost $6.5 million just in donations. This makes up 99% of their revenue. And Thunderbird now employs 24 people, including a lot of design and UX-focused roles, uh, to transition Thunderbird into a, a more user-friendly application than what it used to be. Because, let's be honest, it has not aged well. Now, what's more interesting, though, is a few remarks here and there in their blog post. Uh, first, they're looking to hire an iOS developer in 2023 to have an iOS client for Thunderbird. You probably already know that they're working with the K9 Mail developer on Android to turn this app into a Android client for Thunderbird. But they want to do the same thing on iOS. So we don't know if they're gonna base themselves off an open source code base that already exists on iOS or if they're going to redevelop everything from scratch. But it's still interesting. Now, second, they're looking at some avenues to generate revenue through new tools and services. And now you might get some Firefox flashbacks with things that you never asked for in your browser being sort of shoved in front of your eyes. But it looks like this is not the way they want to do it. They don't want to paywall any feature that you actually already have access to. Uh, they don't want to hamstring the current experience. It looks like these will be additional things. And those things will be introduced at least partially in 2023. So we'll have to wait a little bit uh, to see what they are actually. But if I had to hazard a guess, I would say they could offer email addresses, email accounts uh, that would be hosted, private, maybe encrypted. Uh, that would be one of the things I would think about. And maybe some additional plugins, like officially supported plugins. I don't know, maybe for Microsoft Exchange or stuff like that. Still, it's great to see that this app, which was basically considered completely dead 10 years ago, is actually alive and very, very well. It's well run, it's super transparent, they communicate really well, they talk about everything they want to implement and the reasons behind them. I don't think there's any ill will towards anything that they've announced, which is very rare in an open source project like that. And yeah, basically it's not dead anymore and it's well-founded. So I think it's awesome. They're doing a really cool, cool job here. Now, we're going to talk about Flathub. Uh, they reached a nice milestone of 1 billion downloads on the platform for its 2100 applications that they host. It looks like the US is the country with the most downloads, followed by Brazil and then Germany, surprisingly. And very surprisingly, the games category is also where the most downloads happened, which Again, if I had to hazard a guess, uh, would probably be from people using a Steam Deck because that's like basically two or three million people already that might have installed Heroic, Lutris or Bottles because on the Steam Deck, you can only really install applications using Flatpak and Flathub. Uh, so probably it comes from that or maybe people just install the Steam Flatpak on every computer, or they just enjoy Zero AD, or they install Yuzu, the Switch emulator, to play their absolutely legitimate Nintendo Switch ROMs that they definitely own. So it is a lot of downloads. One billion is a big number. It's probably ridiculous if you compare it to the Windows Store, the Mac App Store, or even just like application downloads from a package manager, from a repo. 
but it's still a big, big number. And it showcases the ability of FlatHub to be a very good platform to distribute applications. So let's hope that companies take the hint and decide to take an interest in Flatpak and start distributing their apps on Linux this way. This is why it's important to communicate about these milestones and these numbers, because it makes the platform look more viable, more professional, and more interesting. And with the future plans that FlatHub has to add payments, it's really becoming the app store for Linux. So I really hope their plan pans out. I really hope the graphical software managers like GNOME Software and Discover work hand in hand with FlatHub to actually support payment for applications and verified badges for applications and stuff like that. I truly hope everything comes together so that the experience is really good for everyone. But we'll have to see. I know some people are not big fans of Flatpak or FlatHub or centralizing Linux software distribution in a single repo. But as I already explained in a video, it doesn't matter if the repo is open source and can be forked and if users can still access apps from anywhere else. And we also have some interesting news about RISC-5. Uh, if you don't know about it, it's an open source CPU architecture that lets you build basically any kind of CPU with a big set of instruction sets that you can pick and choose from. So you can build really small underpowered CPUs that basically draw no power or very complex powerful CPUs. Although for now we mostly saw really small like single board computer style Raspberry Pi style CPUs. And so this support is apparently improving on Linux because there's now an official Ubuntu 23.04 image for the Star 5 Vision 5.2 which is a name you probably never heard of, it's just another RISC-V powered single board computer. But what makes it interesting is that it's the first single board computer with a RISC-V CPU using an integrated GPU as well. All other boards did not have a GPU uh, on, on the package, uh, on the system on a chip, uh, which made them unsuitable for most day-to-day -day activities. So this is a very nice proof of concept for the RISC-V architecture. And Ubuntu already supported a few other RISC-V computers, but with this one you could actually build a full computer that can do hardware accelerated graphical stuff. And for users of this board, it also means that you have access to an up-to-date mainstream distribution with all the recent development tools and everything you might want to actually make use of your single board computer. So I think it's a, it was worth being mentioned here because it's an interesting step in that architecture. And it also means we're gonna see maybe a little bit more competition in this space because x86 is now getting challenged by ARM CPUs, at least on the Windows side and on the Mac side, of course, with Apple Silicon. It looks like Microsoft is also planning to work on their own ARM-based chips uh, for probably their Surface line of, of devices. And so that's already two architectures that battle it out with multiple vendors. And so if we could have RISC-V as yet another interesting architecture that actually shipped in actually sold computers, uh, that would be pretty cool. I really love the philosophy behind this thing because you basically can create any CPU you want with this. It's open, you can openly share the designs. It's not super locked down. I don't think there are any fees to pay to actually use the design. So I just hope that it gets out 
of the current role of single board computer stuff because while that's cool that doesn't appeal to the general public i hope we will see more desktop or laptop class cpus that make use of it just so we have maybe three alternatives that are maybe good at different things i think it would be really cool Okay, and now it's time for the gaming news. And we have some bad stuff and a little bit of good stuff as well. So first, Nintendo once again cemented its place as a horrible gaming company by issuing DMCA takedown requests against emulation tools, which I am once again forced to insist on are legal in most if not all countries. Emulation is legal if you use the keys or BIOS from your own device and your own ripped ROMs. It's legal. There's nothing they can do about that. But specifically this time they're moving against tools like Lockpick, which lets you grab your own keys, your signing keys from your own Switch, to add into an emulator to perform legal emulation. Because those keys are the proof that you actually own original official Nintendo hardware, and so using them in the emulator is absolutely legal. And this project, Lockpick, still remains up for now. The developer hasn't commented on, on this DMCA takedown for now, but it had a side effect, which is that the developer for Skyline, which is a Switch emulator for Android, well, this developer decided not to take any risks and they just stopped working on their project. The code is still available, but they decided, you know what, if they come after me, there's no way I can defend myself, so I'm just going to stop. This is bad. It's terrible. And, and it's even terrible for Nintendo, because now users might not, if lockpick ends, users will not have any way of doing legal emulation. And so do you think people will just stop emulating the Nintendo Switch? Or do you think they will use an illegal method to do so instead? We all know it's the second one. So basically, Nintendo removes legal ways to use their games and from people who actually buy their games, and this will only encourage more illegal uh, emulation, which is completely stupid. And on top of that, something very ironic, Yuzu, the Nintendo Switch emulator, just announced that they have achieved a 50% performance boost compared to their previous version, which users only have to update to the newest version of Yuzu to benefit from. So, yeah, Nintendo Switch emulation is not dying. It will probably never die, whatever Nintendo wants to do. So instead of being an idiot and, let's say frankly, an ass about it, they, they could just accept that it's legal and that users can do it legally and leave those projects in peace. This does not hurt their revenue at all. They need to stop this. Now, we also have some bad news for Roblox players, the gambling thing that all parents hate because their kids spend way too much money on some crap inside of this game. Uh, Linux will soon not be an option at all to play Roblox. The developers have confirmed that they will block Wine or Proton. They won't support it in any way. They won't provide a native Linux client. They had left some doubt about that. I think it was two weeks ago when they announced their new launcher, which did not work with Wine or Proton. But now it's officially confirmed they will not work on that. The, the developers said they actually wanted to personally, but that they just don't have the resources. And it's using a weird anti-cheat again. And they just think that with if they enabled Wine or Proton support for it, it would let cheaters in, which 
has never been demonstrably proven by any of the companies that refuse to implement anti-cheat support in Proton or for Wine. Uh, none has given any evidence that Proton players could cheat more easily with that support, but yeah, that's what's happening. So you will not be able to play Roblox on Linux using the Windows client unless someone figures out a workaround that also doesn't get you banned from the game. Now, we still have some good news, uh, especially for Steam, because the desktop Steam client will soon be able to use the global scale factor that is set by GNOME or KDE, which means finally the Steam desktop client will scale properly with your display resolution and scaling factor, which is nice. Uh, so the latest beta adds that support and everyone will benefit from it in a few weeks at most uh, when that update is deployed to everyone. So now your Steam client will not look extremely huge or super tiny on your high-risk screen, which is really cool. And it's also very cool to see Valve focusing on the desktop client for Linux. Uh, they already added hardware acceleration to it. I think it was last week uh, in, the, in the previous beta. So yeah, it's, it's really good to see them finally make an effort to support Linux as a viable platform. It's probably the result of them using Linux in the Steam Deck, let's be honest, but it's still super cool. Now for Intel and AMD GPU users, there's the Mesa Drivers 23.1 and they're a big, big update. The first thing is that they now support Rust ICL, which is an OpenCL implementation that doesn't need or OCM, which is something that you could only use with the AMD GPU Pro drivers that are proprietary, that might break your system or at least hurt your performance in games. Basically what it's used for is probably running DaVinci Resolve. I hope this new OpenCL implementation is recognized by DaVinci Resolve because that would mean that with the open source AMD drivers and this Rust ICL implementation, you could run DaVinci Resolve without modifying your drivers and so you would not be locked to NVIDIA GPUs at all. It's a niche thing, but I think it's a good thing. So I really hope this support works on Resolve so that I can transition my computers to AMD and stop using proprietary drivers. I will still use proprietary software with Resolve, but at least the drivers will not be proprietary. Now, they also reduce the size of shader caches, uh, at least if they're stored in a single file. They will use less disk space, uh, which is also good because we all know that those shader caches take a long time to build and can be pretty big. They now enable the new graphics pipeline, which should help a lot with game stutters, uh, especially when the shaders are being built. If when you enter a new area in a game, you see the game stuttering for a few seconds, that's because it's compiling the shaders. The new graphics pipeline should help with that. And so stutters should not disappear, but be very much reduced. And there are some performance improvements for AMD GPUs as well, including for the Steam Deck. There's better support for Intel GPUs and more. So, of course, depending on your distro, you will either get this really soon or you will have to wait for the next major upgrade to get it. It all depends on what you're using. It's pretty good stuff and I'm more and more interested in the Mesa drivers because I purchased a Radeon RX 6650 XT to go into my future Steam console that will run plugged into my TV. So if you want me to make a video about that soon, uh, let me know in the comments of the podcast on the podcast website, which is podcast.thelinuxexp.com. 
And to finish with the gaming news and the podcast, we have the first stable 1.0 release of D8VK, which is like DXVK, but for DirectX 8 games. Uh, DXVK supports DirectX 9, 10, and 11. You've got VK D3D for DirectX 12. And now we have D8VK for older DirectX 8 titles. And this apparently enables much, much better performance for older games uh, than using DXVK instead. Uh, So these older games include Age of Mythology, Another World, Command and Conquer Generals or Command and Conquer Renegade, Cossacks 2, Fear 1, Freelancer, GTA 3, GTA Vice City, Max Payne 1 and 2, or the horrible Resident Evil Survivor, and that's just a very small portion of the whole list of games that used DirectX 8. Now, of course, before anyone can make use of it, it will need to be included in Proton or various other Linux gaming tools. Uh, But you can expect your nostalgia trips to run much, much better than they used to. Now, apparently in some instances, DXVK will still have the edge, or the Wine D3D implementation will still have the edge, but not by much. And in most cases, where D8VK is better than the older implementations, it's really, really better. Like 25 to 30% better. So yeah, it's, it's a nice tool. So this will conclude this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, As always, all the links are in the show notes, all the links to my social networks, to my video producing YouTube channel, which is my main business, and all the links uh, to support the show are in the show notes as well. So thank you all for listening, and I guess you'll hear me in the next one. Bye!